Old Testament lesson comes from Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, hear now the word of our God. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck, them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and, your, and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is the word of the Lord. When we think about Job, there's, it's important to consider What's the question that's being asked? Rolf Kaler, one of our former elders who is now with Jesus and knows all these things so much better than we do, uh, once gave a meditation on the book of Job where he said, I, I got to the end of the book of Job and, and I, I just found myself frustrated because it seems like the, the book isn't answering the question. And so at one point he, was, he, he, he put the book down and said, will somebody please tell me what the question is? 
And then he thought, well, maybe, maybe I should actually go back to the beginning and start, start again and try to figure out what's the question that's being asked. So he, he came to Job 3 and found in Job 3 where Job, this is uh, over in uh, verse 11 and following, sort of uh, particularly verse 20 was the, uh, the, point, the, the question that he found in Job. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death but it comes not and dig for it more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden whom God has hedged in? And Rolf realized Job's question is not why do the innocent suffer? Job's question is why does God give light and life to those who are miserable? That's Job's question. That's a very different question than the one we often ask of the book of Job. But Job's question is, why light, why life? Now, we're not going to do a whole series on Job right now, but I'll just tell you, as you go through the wisdom debate with the friends, by the end of the debate... Job is coming back, he's, he's, he's pursuing this question, and he comes to finally ask the question that Satan asked. Does Job fear God for no reason? He asks the question because, I mean, this, is, this is actually, I suspect, this is the question we wind up asking ourselves as well. Why do I fear God? what good is it doing me? <laughs> because Job had been protected before, now his protection is gone. He's like, okay, what's the point? If everything is misery, if everything is suffering, is every... why do I fear God? That's where Job winds up. In the, he's asking the question. Now, and, and his answer is, you know, basically, Job's like, okay, I know that, you, you're, I know that you're just. I know that you are, you are holy. I know that you're righteous. And I know that what's happening to me is wrong and doesn't fit what I've done. <laughs> I'm innocent. You're righteous. How come this makes any sense? And that's why we need to go all the way back to the very first question of the book. Well, technically the first question is when he says to Satan, from where have you come? But the basic question of the book, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. That's the, the first question. That's the foundational question of the book of Job. Have you considered my servant Job? Now, that question is directed to Satan, the accuser, and Satan takes this as a challenge. But the question is really directed to us. Have you considered Job? the innocent, suffering servant of the Lord. Uh, to use Paul's phrase, which prompted this in my thinking, Job fills up in his flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Why? For the sake of his body, that is, the church. What is Job doing in his suffering? He is prefiguring Christ. He is filling up in his flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. You might say, what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Christ is a perfect atoning, atoning sacrifice. Oh, that's not what's lacking. But what's lacking is, well, 
in Job's case, the, the problem is, how can, how can the innocent suffer? Well, let's put it the other way. What if the innocent can't suffer? If only the guilty can suffer for their sins, then there will never be salvation. There will never be redemption. There will never be an innocent suffering servant who will take upon himself the sins of the world. Because if the innocent can't suffer, then neither can Jesus. And then we start realizing what God is doing in Job, what God is doing in all innocent suffering throughout all of human history is showing that there is, sure, in one sense, that's horrible. But it's also only if the innocent suffer that the innocent one, our Lord Jesus Christ, can suffer and bring salvation. Our psalm of response in Psalm 44 is the song of the innocent sufferer. The psalmist notes that, that God has handed us over to our enemies even though we have not forgotten you. We've not been false to your covenant. There were times when Israel actually did live the way God said. And they still got handed over to their enemies. And, and the psalmist is like, wait a second. We've been faithful. We've done what you said. And yet you've still handed us over to our enemies. Why? Well, because if the innocent cannot suffer, then it's impossible for the guilty to be redeemed. Our New Testament lesson comes from Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. Hear now the word of our God. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Paul has set forth in his opening section in verses of 3 to 23 the, the, the centrality of Christ. Christ, the firstborn of creation, Christ, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And now Paul says, this is what my ministry is about. Uh, the section we're reading today is, is, is how Paul thinks of his own ministry as preeminently Christ-centered. The goal of Paul's ministry is laid out for us here. 
that he might present everyone mature, perfect, complete in Christ Jesus. And towards this end, there, there are three things that Paul does. He suffers, he ministers, and he preaches. As he makes clear in verse 29, it is the working of Christ within him that enables him to labor and strive. And sure, what Paul's talking about here is he's talking about himself and by implication, suggesting that this should also be true for every Christian pastor. But of course, the principles are true also for every Christian. His energy that he powerfully works within me. Think about, think about what Paul's saying here. Because this isn't, you know, perhaps in the Old Testament, the, the, the Holy Spirit only came upon the, the prophets, priests, and kings. But now the Spirit of God has filled all of his people. And because Christ has joined himself to our humanity, he has joined us to God. It's, it's, it's partly why I keep bringing up this, this old-fashioned term like uncreated grace. Because it makes us... You know, if, sometimes if we just say, yeah, you've been united to Christ. That just doesn't seem to communicate what it should. But uncreated grace reminds us that what's uncreated? God himself. What has God given us? His Holy Spirit, who is God himself. God has given us uncreated grace. Has we, it's not just that he's given us good stuff, good things, helpful benefits. He's given us himself that we might be conformed to his likeness. And that's what Paul's referring to by his energy that he powerfully works within me. The energies of God himself by his spirit are now at work within us. So this means that for Paul, as speaking first as an apostle, but then also part of I mean, what he's talking about here is what every minister of, of, of Christ Jesus must do. So for me, as your pastor, it is my calling to suffer, to minister, and to preach so that I might present you mature and complete, perfect in Christ Jesus. So let's look at how Paul views his own ministry and, and what it teaches about who Christ is, what he has done, who we are in Christ, and what that means for our lives. Paul starts off by saying, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, that in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. This is rooted in what he's just said about Christ as the firstborn, the firstborn of creation, the firstborn from the dead, because if this is where if Christ is the firstborn, then we who are fellow heirs with Christ must also participate in whatever Christ has received. Christ suffered, therefore we suffer. Uh, think of how Jesus says it in John 15. No servant is greater than his master. Or what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. Those who follow Christ will suffer. But Paul is saying something more here. Yes, all of us will suffer for Christ. All of us will suffer with Christ. Because... Since we have chosen to follow him, we will face the same persecution that he did. But, but Paul does not say that he suffers for Christ. He says that he suffers for the church. Because 
Paul, as a minister of the gospel, is a representative to the church, verse 25. And those who present the word of God in its fullness must expect to fill up in their flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. So, Why are pastors subject to special attacks, in a sense, from the world, the flesh, and the devil? Well, because they are commissioned by God to preach and to minister. Christ's sufferings as an atonement for sin are absolutely unique. No one shares in those. Yet Christ's sufferings as the faithful prophet who boldly spoke the word of God, well, those were shared by the prophets of old and by the apostles and pastors of the New Testament. Jesus, in, in Matthew's gospel, spoke of how the prophets of old were, were beaten and killed, and so also he would be beaten and killed. And so also would those who minister in his name. Now, and these sufferings are not yet complete. These sufferings are filled up through the faithful suffering of Christ's ministers through the martyrs of all ages. I like the story of, of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, who were burned at the stake for their faith in the 16th century. As they came to, to light the fires, Latimer said to Ridley, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Now, there was, there was a third minister who heard those words. Thomas Cranmer listened from the window of his prison cell, and when they came for him, the, he, he was afraid. And so he recanted, the preaching of the gospel and was willing to put his name at first to a document that said that he recanted the gospel and would go back to serving the Pope. And then when they brought him out to sign, well, he'd already signed it, they brought him out to give voice to his, he was supposed to read his recantation but at the last moment, he recanted his recantation and said, no, I cannot betray my master. And then they took him thence to the, to the scaffolding to be burned at the stake. And he plunged the hand that had signed the recantation into the fire first and watched his own hand burn to a stump. Crying out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Because Thomas Cranmer understood that, that he was simply filling up in his flesh what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ because he was suffering not, in this sense, not for Christ's sake, but for the church's sake. Because as, as Latimer had said, we shall this day light such a candle <laughs> by God's grace in England, as I trust, shall never be put out. Because just as Job was a picture of the innocent suffering servant before Jesus, so also Paul, and then Latimer, Ridley, and Cranmer became a picture of the innocent suffering servant after Jesus. But it's, it's not just a picture, because Paul's afflictions, Paul's suffering are not just what he does Christ, but there are themselves Christ's afflictions. Did you hear how he said it? I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It's not that my suffering and his suffering are two totally different things. 
And Paul, of all people, understood why. Because on the road to Damascus, when Jesus appeared to him, and Paul asked, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Wait, Jesus was sitting at the right hand of the Father. How could you say that Jesus was the one Paul looked up? Paul was persecuting Christians. Yeah. Christians who have been united to Christ by his spirit. And thus, when you suffer persecution and affliction for Christ's sake, Christ's, Christ himself is afflicted. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And if Jesus has united a people to himself, if his life is now at work in us, as, as Paul will say in chapter 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And this is why Paul rejoices in his sufferings, because he knows that the church is growing, that the gospel is spreading. And so he ministers the mysteries of God, he says, of which I became a minister of the gospel, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Paul says he suffers for the sake of the body of Christ. Paul is a, 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 a servant of the church. Uh, this is when this word uh, minister that he uses is a diakonos can be translated servant, but it's, it's never used of a house servant. It's referring to a sort of official service. It's actually very much like in the British government where they talk about the foreign minister, the prime minister. It's the word minister is probably the best translation of the word diakonos because a minister of the gospel is a servant of the gospel, is one who is employed in the service of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is called to serve the body of Christ by proclaiming the mystery of God. Paul uses the term stewardship or administration to describe his task. He is called as a steward, not for himself, not for his own glory, but, verse 25, this stewardship was given to Paul by God for you so that you might fulfill the word of God, which is the mystery kept hidden for ages, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So when, when Paul talks about a mystery, uh, we sometimes get, we, we, get, we have all, all this mysterious stuff going on. You know, people talk about mysteries nowadays. That, nothing like what Paul's talking about here. The language of, of mystery in the New Testament is, is not something that's difficult to understand or obscure or arcane. Rather, it's something that was hidden before, but now clearly revealed. In fact, that's the way Paul describes it here. He says, verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. In other words, this mystery is now clear. What was once hidden, what was once secret, is now clearly made known. And what is that mystery? Well, it's especially, as he says in verse 27, it's the, 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 this is the, the mystery that God would include the Gentiles because this was something which God had not, he had not clearly revealed in the Old Testament how he would do it. Certainly every Jew knew that through Abraham all the nations would be blessed, but they had no idea how this would be done because ultimately the mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Paul makes clear that our hope is Christ. He himself is the hope of glory. And that's why we have a hope that does not disappoint. Christ's presence with us and in us is the guarantee of our participation in his inheritance. Where is your hope? What are you trusting in? What are you sort of hanging on? Probably somewhere in your house you, you have, a, have some pegs where you, you hang your, ho- your, your, your hat or your coat. If, if the peg is solidly attached to a stud in the wall, then you can hang a lot on that peg. But if, have you ever, ever made a mistake and just the, the peg is just, just resting in drywall? <laughs> and for a while it worked, but then eventually the drywall gives way and poof, peg comes crashing down. Well, hope is like a peg that you hang your life on. And if your hope is hanging on anything other than Christ, then when difficulties come, everything comes crashing down. There's a big mess on the floor. But if your hope is rooted in Christ, if he is the stud you nail your hope to, then in all the storms of life, you have a safe anchor because the mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery isn't something obscure, hard to understand. No, the mystery was something that hadn't been clearly revealed yet. It was, but now has. And that mystery is now clearly available and presented to all. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim. It is Christ whom we preach. And this proclamation in verses 28 and 29 consists of two parts. There's warning and teaching. Warning. And that's an important thing which sometimes doesn't happen a lot nowadays. Because warning, there's danger if you go the wrong direction. Rebuking, confronting, challenging, encouraging. This is the function of, of discipling, training in godliness. So there's warning everyone and teaching everyone. How does, and how does Paul proclaim Christ? How does he teach? How does he warn? With all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Wisdom is fundamentally knowing how to live in God's world. And where do you find wisdom? If you look forward into chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, well, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And Paul does this for the purpose that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul desires to stand before Christ and present each member of his flock before his master and to hear Jesus' voice say, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul has a fire burning in his heart to see the Colossians, the Laodiceans, and all who he hasn't even met live up to who they are in Christ. And that's where Paul's job, and my job for that matter, is to, is, is, is to present you as perfect, mature in Christ. The, the advantage that we have over, is that Christ has already done the work and it's his energy that is at work within us. You are a new creation in Christ. You have been made complete in him. Uh, the problem is you and I are so mule-headed that we refuse to live up to who we already are in Christ. God has given us all spiritual blessings 
in Christ. He has poured out his Holy Spirit on us. He's given us new hearts, new life. He's renewed us after the image of Christ. And yet, we don't live as righteous, holy people. Maybe, maybe you've given your dog a bath and then what's the first thing a dog wants to do after he's had a bath? Go run out in the dirt again. In the same way, we've been washed with the blood of Christ and yet we can't seem to wait to jump back into the mud puddles. And this is why Christ has appointed ministers in his church to admonish and teach warning of the consequences of sin, proclaiming the wonders of what Christ has done. And so Paul labors, verse 29, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul agonizes in his labors to present everyone mature in Christ. And this is what he's called me to do as well and all ministers of the gospel. But not for a moment does Paul think that his own energy is sufficient. It is only Christ's energy that's sufficient. It's something over the years I've seen. Every time I rely on my own energy, I burn out fast. But when I rely on his energy that he works within me, I can keep going. And yet, it's still a struggle. Paul says, verse, verse 1 of chapter 2, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who, I have, who have not seen me face to face. If you think about it, Paul struggles, Paul agonizes for you. You're included in Colossians 2 verse 1. Anybody here ever seen Paul face to face? Okay, then you're included. Because... He says, yeah, I, I struggle for, for you, for the Laodiceans, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Why? That their hearts may be encouraged. This is what Paul wants you to see. He wants, you to, he wants your heart to be encouraged by this message of the mystery that has been revealed. In one sense, everything in this passage refers back to this. The goal of Paul's ministry was to present everyone mature and complete in Christ Jesus. The fruit that he seeks is that their hearts may be encouraged, that they might understand the mystery of God and have full assurance, not, not just intellectually, but in the deepest part of them, in their hearts, that their hearts might be encouraged. And how are our hearts encouraged? Well, again, Paul says three things about this. But the love and fellowship of the body, in verse 2, the true knowledge of Christ, in verse 2 and 3, and the good order and steadfast steadfast faith of the church in verses 4 and 5. This is, this is how our hearts are encouraged. First, being knit together in love, verse 2, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And this, this word he uses, to knit together, that we, might be, that we might be drawn together, instructed, proven it's a love that is rooted and grounded in the reality of the gospel, the reality of what God has done in Jesus. And Paul's using all sorts of knowledge language here, understanding, knowledge, wisdom. But this is a, a knowledge and a wisdom that are hidden in the person of Jesus Christ. So what, what does it mean to have our, our hearts knit together in love? Think back to where Paul started in chapter 1, verse 4. He gave thanks to God ever since he heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. 
We saw that their, their hope in Christ had produced faith toward God and love toward one another. And Paul now says that his suffering and agonizing for the Colossians is to produce a, a greater love for one another as they see the word of God growing and spreading throughout the world. Paul is simply echoing the, the teaching of Christ who said that it was by the love of Christians for one another that the world would know that Christ was sent by the Father. And this love is the bond that knits us together. This love is found in Christ. And, and, and Paul tells us how this will happen. You see, the passage could be translated, in order that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together by love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. Because when you have grasped the height and depth of the great love with which the Father has loved us in Christ, it's then that we can love one another. It's when we have the full assurance of the knowledge of Christ, when we see Him clearly, when we have known and understood the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, that solid peg that you can hang your life on, it's then that our hearts receive that encouragement which knits us together in love. How do you love each other well? Well, when you see who you are in Jesus, when you see that, yeah, all these things that are dividing us, all these things that are pulling us apart, all that happens when we are looking at something other than Jesus, when we're hanging our lives on something other than Jesus. Because then when we turn back to him, then we can see, oh yeah, I haven't been loving Jesus. I haven't been loving you because I've been focused on something else. It's only when we have that hope set on Jesus because our hope is Jesus that we then grasp the height and depth of that love with which the Father has loved us. It's only then that our hearts are encouraged through the knowledge of the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Our hearts are knit together by love and for all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. Notice that, that love is, an in, you can't get around it. Love is the only way to get to assurance. If you're trying to find assurance apart from love, ain't going to work. Because this is where our hearts are knit together by love for all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. Now, this, this doesn't go over well in our individualistic culture. We all, we want to just do, uh, hey, I just, you know, me, me and Jesus, we can handle this. Paul says, no, you can't. We need each other. We will only have assurance of understanding. It, we will only come to a true knowledge of the mystery of God together. If all we do is, is study our Bibles by ourselves, we will not come to an understanding of the truth. If all we do is live in our own little corner, we will not have our hearts knit together by love. Neither will we have full assurance of our understanding of the mystery of God. Because it's only when we humble ourselves enough to love others and put their needs ahead of our own. Oh, that's hard. I don't want to put your needs ahead of mine. I got needs. But Paul, Paul says, and if you've ever actually experienced this, you know, <laughs> that 
when we are pursuing our own ends, when we are pursuing our own goals, when we are putting others aside in order to put ourselves forward, where does that end? Oh, you might wind up with some, you know, temporarily great situation. But all of those people who got pushed aside in order to get you ahead, that comes back to bite you every time. Because we're not loving each other the way God loved us. We're not loving the Lord our God with all our heart. And that's where we have to see when, you know, and that's where repenting of that and saying, no, that was wrong. We can't do that. We have to love the way that God has loved us. And Paul says that, so what, what are these full riches of complete understanding? <laughs> what is the mystery of God? Well, Christ himself. The mystery which has been revealed to the Gentiles is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. No knowledge is true knowledge unless it is rooted in Christ. No wisdom is true wisdom unless it flows from Christ. The most brilliant scientist or philosopher are, are, can ultimately be a fool because they insist on interpreting the world apart from Christ. Oh, they can be right about a lot of things. They can, they can know many things, but they cannot know as things really are because everything is held together by the word of Christ's power. He is the, as we saw in chapter one, he is the one in whom all things hold together. And this will be a key argument for Paul in the, in the next section because Paul is concerned that the Colossians are, are being deceived and, and cheated by the philosophies that surround them. And Paul is, is it, I mean, you, might, you might think, okay, so what's he doing here? Well, he wants to talk about these philosophies. But notice he doesn't start by talking about the philosophies. He starts by talking about Christ. He starts by talking about being knit together in love because sometimes we get really focused on how do I answer all the questions? How do I deal with all the, you know, the, the, the... okay, some people that's, are, are, are great at all the intellectual debate stuff. But Paul's not saying that's what we should all be focused on. How do we actually answer? We answer by our love. We answer by being a community that is knit together in love, that shows a different way of living before the watching world, that when they see us, they see a community that, that loves in a way that they've never seen before. And because of that, the empty and hollow philosophies of the day are answered. And yes, some people should actually spend the time to study all the stuff and get all the knowledge. and That's, that's great. But it's not by having some brilliant apologist who will answer all the questions. That's not the way that this answers. The way they get answered is by a, which really this is where Paul is, 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 is going, is, is, because you need one another. You need, the, and this is where the, all the, the body language in chapter 1 comes to a head. It's through your love and encouragement of one another stimulated and nourished by, by Paul and other ministers of the gospel that you will come to the full knowledge of Christ. It's not primarily sort of intellectually in, instructing each other that plays a role, but it's that your love opens the door to true knowledge and understanding. 
Which brings us to our final point, that our hearts are encouraged through the good order and the steadfast faith of the church. Paul says in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. There's the philosophies of the day. Sound plausible. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Don't let the wisdom of this world lead you astray. And that's where it's not about having clever arguments, but it's about living as the body of Christ, steadfast in the faith, unmoved from the hope of the gospel. I mean, if you've ever been in a church that is torn apart with divisions and, 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 and scandals, and that's, that's not good order. The, the Corinthian church at this time is, was not doing well. And that's where... Paul rejoices to see the Colossians, their, their good order and their, and their love for one another, the firmness of your faith in Christ. And Paul says that as long as you are orderly and firm in the faith, growing in love and encouragement, growing in the true knowledge of Christ, then no one will deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. To, to paraphrase verse 6, be who you are in Christ. True order in the church is a delight. Not a man-made order all stiff with rigid rules and prohibitions, but the order that comes from the love and encouragement that is in Christ. Paul commends them for their orderly worship and life together. Uh, and that's, it's, When he writes to the Corinthians, he's, he tells them to you know, get it straight and start doing things decently and in order. Here he praises them for their steadfastness. He rejoices that they have not fallen away from the faith and encourages them to persevere in their calling. And even so, our life and worship in the church is to be ordered by the wisdom of Christ so that we might continue to find our joy and encouragement in Him. Again, we're seeing that the whole of the book of Colossians is all about who is Christ? What has He done for our salvation? Who are we in Christ? And what does that mean for our lives? These are the questions that Paul is, is answering for the Colossians. And he, he's now come to the end, you might say, of part one. Christ is the image of the invisible God in whom are all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, by whom all things are made, in whom all things hold together. He is the firstborn of creation, the firstborn from the dead, that he might be preeminent in everything. And so the fullness of God dwelt bodily in Christ Jesus so that through his death and resurrection he might reconcile us who once were alienated, who once were enemies of God, that we might be reconciled to the Father. So Jesus is your hope. He is your salvation. And in Christ, you have been made alive. Christ in you is the true hope of glory. This is who Christ is and what he has done for our salvation. And now Paul will turn to who we are in Christ and what that means for our lives. So let's pray. Lord, help us because we, we are forgetful and we, we do not walk humbly before you, trusting you in all of our ways. So forgive us, Lord, and, and help us to heed your call, to repent where we have sinned, to forgive those who have sinned against us, to seek you and to love you and to know you, that, that we might 
humble ourselves before you and before one another. Lord, have mercy. And may your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the hope of glory, continue to work in us that which is pleasing in your sight, that by his energy we might work, that by his energy I might be your servant in proclaiming the gospel of Christ and in, in stewarding the mysteries of, of your holy servant Jesus. For we pray this in his name. Amen.